I suppose if you are intimidated by the memorization of Scripture, if you're memorizing from the New Testament, you might start with Jesus wept. If you, if you uh, wanted to start in the Old Testament, memorizing an entire psalm, you may want to begin with Psalm 117. It is the shortest psalm in the Psalter. It is the middle chapter of your English Bible. It hangs like a hinge in the scriptures. It's a glorious psalm. It's been said that good things come in small packages, and in this case, that is definitely true. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to your word to show us wonderful things. And again, use it, Lord, for your glory, we ask. Amen. John Piper said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God... Missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. John Piper is right. Worldwide worship necessitates a worldwide witness. And we must never as a church or as individual believers, followers in the Lord Jesus Christ, lose our commitment and our zeal to see the word of God propounded across this planet to blanket the earth, carried by the people of God to every corner of creation. Psalm 117 has been rightly called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. I think you could also call it the Matthew 28.19 of the Old Testament. Why is it that we must go and make disciples of all nations? It is because Christ deserves the honor that is due his name from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This is our great motivation, beloved, for missions. This is why we go. This is why we send. Let's read together Psalm 117, a psalm of praise. Praise the Lord, all the nations. Laud him all peoples, for his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. This great psalm comes to us under two headings. First, the call for universal praise, and secondly, the cause for universal praise. Let's look at the call for universal praise. The nature of this call we see right from the very beginning in those first opening words which also form the closing words of this psalm. It is a call to praise. This is a commandment to honor God. It is a call to worldwide worship, to praise him, to laud him, to extol the Lord for his greatness, to make much of Yahweh. It is to acknowledge the God of the Bible as the best and greatest of beings. It is to honor him supremely. It is to honor him infinitely. It is to give him praise forevermore. 
This is not a call to lip service. This is a call to see converted hearts declaring the glory of God from sincerity, from the inside out, from gladness and humility and joy. We are to delight in God. Mankind is to worship him. He is to be our everything. He is to be the center of our worlds. He is to be the affection of our souls. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is to captivate us, to dominate our time and our attention on this planet. To praise the Lord is the first thought of the psalmist, and it is the last thought of the psalmist in Psalm 117. It is the same theme throughout. Everything else in this psalm is aimed at that reality, that we are called to give praise and honor to our great God. And it is a call. This is not merely an invitation to the world to come and worship Yahweh. This is an imperative. This is a duty. This is a mandate to the whole of mankind to come and to worship their creator. He is the creator of all. He is the sovereign king of the universe. He is the redeemer of sinners. He is the judge of all the earth. And he alone is worthy to be praised. And so that leads us from the nature of this call to the object of this call. Yahweh is to be the recipient of our praise. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Laud him, all peoples. This is a call to every nation and to all people to come and to worship the Lord alone. There are many nations. There are many peoples. There there is a great deal of geography on this planet inhabited by humanity. But there is one God. There is one God. The millions of the Hindu gods are no gods. The God of Islam is no God. There is one God, though there are many people, and it is this God that all of mankind was created to worship. And it has been well said that mankind is in fact created to worship. You were created to worship. It may be the car in your garage. It may be leisure. It may be a tree. It may be a block of stone, but every man worships. This is a call to narrow that focus to the only one who is worthy of worship, and that is Yahweh himself. This really is a very exclusive passage in that sense. It's inclusive in that all are called. It is exclusive in that all are called to worship one God, the true God, the only God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Bible. The problem is that mankind is forever directing our worship in all the wrong places and to all the wrong things. Sinful humanity has been taking what belongs to God rightly, what is his right and his possession alone, that glory that is due to his name that he will not share with another, and we have been cheating him by spreading out our worship to to things that are unworthy. Mankind spreads the the glory that is due God very thinly across all kinds of things to everything and anything but the God of the Bible. Flip over with me to 
Romans chapter 1, a very familiar passage. And we come to it a lot because it is so vital to our grasp of the world in which we live. Paul writes in Romans 1 and verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. When I was a child, I used to like all those floating little things that my mom would put in the bathtub. I had a ship and a duck and a whatever else. I had a load of things, and I used to play a game. I was kind of long and lanky, and I was trying to keep all of those toys simultaneously underwater, using my limbs and my head and whatever else I could. The head was interesting. It oxygen-deprived. It, 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 it is why I am the way I am. Anyway, what is mankind trying to do? Well, the glory of God is bubbling forth. It's exploding across the face of the globe. In all that mankind can see, in the heavens above and on the earth below, the glory of God is everywhere. And it has been communicated very clearly to men. Look at verse 19. Men are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed against them. Why? Verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. God has been teaching every creature about his reality. That he exists. That he is God. That he is holy. That there is a a necessity of leading a life that is holy. And men come to know by the witness internally by the law of God being written upon their hearts, that there is a God to whom glory is due and that he is a holy God and that there will be judgment to pay at the end for a sinful life of rejecting him. God made it evident to them. The best of teachers has taught every man these things at the level of his conscience. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature, note this, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God has revealed himself to the the conscience of men. God has revealed himself in creation to men. Men can see clearly so that they are without excuse. And man suppresses what they know. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. That's the language of worship, beloved. They did not honor him or give thanks to him. They gave God the hand. They gave God, they turned their backs. And they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. And they went on what? Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. You see, his glory, he deserves to be worshipped. He is the only eternal and incorruptible God. He is glorious beyond measure. But they exchanged all of that. They traded all of that. They focused their, their, their worship upon an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This is very evident, as John Paul said, in India. You can see the idols as you drive along. They're everywhere. 
you can see the shamans and the priests and all the imams, and you can see everybody offering up incense and going to the, the next altar, the next place of worship, to, to give to a statue, to the image of a monkey or an elephant, what is due to the one who created them all. When I was in India, it's beautiful there in many ways, and I woke up in the morning and walked out early and had a cup of coffee, and I, I was awakened, really, at around 5 o'clock by this cacophony of sounds coming out of loudspeakers, out of minarets, out of all kinds of places. The, the Hindus were calling their people to go and worship, and the Catholics were calling theirs to come and worship with a song that sounded strangely like the small world, if you ever encountered it at Disneyland. And, and then there were the, the Muslim call to prayer at, at 5 a.m. Brothers and sisters... Psalm 117 is, is a divine bullhorn that is to drown out any other call to worship. This psalm thunders forth, bidding all in the world to turn off their calls to false gods, their worship of false gods, and to come to the one true God. This is nothing less than a clarion call for all the people in all the world to turn from idols and to serve the living and true God. To abandon their false religion, to reject their false gods, to forsake their idols, and to give the living and true God his due. And lest you think, boy, those poor people in India with their idols, trust me, we've got them. They're different in their manifestation. It may be made of metal or made of money. It may not be a block of stone for you, but we've got our idols, and this is a call to abandon those things and to come and to worship our king. So what is the nature of this call? We are to come and to give praise to the one true God, who is the centerpiece of our worship. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Yahweh. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the great three in one. We are to worship the God of the Bible. So having considered the call to universal praise, the psalmist then gives us the cause for universal praise. We don't worship what we don't understand. We worship the one we know. And that's inherent in this text, that we would make him known. There are three reasons given in our text for the worship of God. The first is implied. The second two are explicit. It's not explicitly stated, but it is obviously implied in the text that God ought to be worshipped because he is God of both the Jew and the Gentile alike. Both are summoned to bless his name. This is a psalm 
not for one nation on earth, but to all nations on earth. This is a psalm not to an individual on earth or a particular group of individuals on earth, but to all people on earth. Look again at verse 1. Praise the Lord, underline it, all nations. Laud him all peoples. There could be no call more broad than this. Typically in the Old Testament, when you see a call to worship Yahweh, it is It is Israel who is directed to worship God. But here in this passage, as we see in in, in other passages sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, we understand that God's plan, what, was not just Israel, but it was to go out to the utter ends of the earth. It It was a salvation that was ultimately to go to all nations and to all people. And therefore, simultaneously, to every nation and to every person. It is a sweeping summons, and there is no one excluded from this call. And so the psalmist here is picking up a golden thread that is woven throughout the passages of the whole of Scripture. Embedded in the Old Testament, even from the earliest chapters of Genesis, we see that God had an intention to bless the Gentiles through Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. We'll actually pick up in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country. You'll remember that Abram was an idol worshiper. Abram was not faithful. Abram was not godly and therefore God chose him. Abram was like you and me. Abram was a sinner. The Lord came to Abram and said, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And here we go. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. Now that gets repeated again a number of times throughout Genesis and throughout the Scripture. This is the Abrahamic covenant. God has always had, from the very beginning, a great love for the world. God's heart has always been for the nations. Israel, you remember, was called to be a light to the nations. And they were a dim light at many periods in their history. Jesus came, and you remember, he was the true light coming into the world. And we see salvation going to a small smattering of people, Gentiles throughout the Old Testament. We see them dotted in there time and again. And we see that in this this Old Testament prophecy that the Gentiles were going to be blessed by God, that the Messiah would come to the Gentiles, that 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 very same Messiah would save them and that they would receive the Holy Spirit and they too would be grafted into that rich root which is Israel itself. But beloved, think with me for a moment. For thousands of years, the nations are shrouded in darkness. 
millions and millions and millions of people spent 70 or 80 years of their life bowing before a block of stone were left to their superstitions, offering incense to gods who are no gods, who cannot deliver the day. And still today there are millions around the world who live in darkness. But have you thought about the grace of God that came to you? That you were born perhaps into a family where the word of God was taught to you, that you had access to gospel preaching churches throughout your life. Maybe you went to a college campus and had Campus Crusade or some other college student ministry. Perhaps for you it was a a godly mother. Maybe for you it was a, a neighbor. Maybe for you it was someone else in your life who brought the gospel into your life because they knew the gospel. Have you ever thought that you were born in this country under the immense light of the gospel that has penetrated this this culture since its inception? Most people do not have those privileges. The vast majority of people throughout humanity bowed before a block of stone and will endure eternity in hell. But you have been given the greatest of gifts. You have been exposed to the clearest and the brightest of lights. You know the truth. And we should praise God for his grace. How many millions have slipped into eternity bowing before the monkey god or the human body with the elephant head thinking that somehow there would be redemption for them? Does your heart weep for that? We have a duty. And the grace that God has shown us should motivate us. Countless numbers. God left them in their sin and left them alone before their false gods to perish. And then we see in this text what is clearly anticipated then explodes onto the scene. There is a new day and we come to the book of Matthew and we hear Jesus, the true light, sending forth his people. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. We hear him say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We hear him tell his disciples, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in my name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem was a launching point. And beloved, this church is a launching point. Peter came to understand through his interaction and his vision as he was called to go to Cornelius 
who was a Roman, who was a Gentile, who was a God-fearer. And Peter came to understand, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Flip over with me to Acts chapter 13. The Apostle Paul, who pursued the church hotly and was converted, became the great preacher to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13, verse 46. Paul is preaching, and he is preaching in a synagogue and the Jews reject his preaching by and large. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. They turned up their loudspeakers. And they were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. The gospel is to the Jew first. There's no question about it. But it is also to the Gentile. Praise God. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you repudiate it and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to what? To the end of the earth. And I just love this scene. We should get a sense of this even this morning that when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of God was being spread throughout the whole region. Why did the the Gentiles rejoice and, and give glory to God? Because they were being defiant of Jews? No. They understood the privilege. That whole notion, really, of, of, of being excluded from the life of God is something that's so foreign to us. But Gentiles lived with that sense. They knew the darkness. They understood the blackness of ignorance. They understood what it was to be cut off. And here the gospel is being offered to them, commanded to them. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so Paul then writes to the Ephesians and he says, I want to tell you about that great mystery that people did not understand in in former times. And he says, here it is, Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
That is shockingly good news. That is astonishing. As those who are on the outside with our nose pressed against the window looking in, to have the door flung open. We were without hope and we were without God in this world. We were those who were far off and now we have been brought near. Beloved, I tell you, we take it for granted that Gentiles are saved. And we see today the gospel going forth and penetrating the nations. I forgot to ask you, Jean Paul, who is the greatest missionary? Who comes to mind? Why do you hold that translation in your hand? William Carey. I knew you were going to say that. William Carey got on a boat. And he said, look, I'm willing men, as he was being sent out, I'm willing to go down in that mine. But you better hold the rope. William Carey got on a boat. I cannot see you. And forget men like William Carey. God stirred that man's heart, William Carey. A brilliant man, a faithful man, a devoted man. And by the grace of God, John Paul is his legacy. If that doesn't motivate us, I don't know what will. William Carey translated the Bible into Telugu. He learned the language and translated it within six months, I think it was. You go in my office, I've got shelves jam-packed with material to help me understand what I'm going to preach. They've got next to nothing over there. Those men that you saw being trained, they have that book. They have nothing and they have everything. Does that make sense? They have nothing and they have everything. But there are not all the aids and all the benefits and all the blessings that we have. Beloved, we are so rich. We have got to to empower and enable, and we've got to respond to this call to equip people like John Paul to preach the word faithfully. Our hearts should pour out toward these works. It's so much better than a new RV. It really is. It's so much better than the latest iPhone. Psalm 117 anticipates the blessings of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. And while we're in the New Testament, I want you to go back to Romans one more time and look at chapter 15 and verse 11.
This is the one place in the New Testament that Psalm 117 is quoted. We'll pick up in verse 8. Here we, here we are in Rome, you've got Jews and Gentiles sitting under the same ministry, sitting in the same church, sitting next to one another on the proverbial pew. Paul is telling them, look, you believers need to minister to one another. You who are mature need to love those who are weaker in the faith. And he's coming to the end of this, of this great argument throughout the last chapter or so And he says, therefore, verse 7, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God, us Jews and us Gentiles. Verse 8, for I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, who's that? That's the Jew, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written, and then he begins to quote by way of proof texting his point that the gospel was to go to the Gentile. He's making it clear to the Jews who sit in Rome that the Gentiles have a rightful place among them in the worship of God. And he begins to quote various passages. You'll see in verse 9, Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. In verse 11, we come to Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And that word Gentile is the same word for nations in the psalm. And let all the peoples praise him. Do you see it? It's embedded in this, in this argument that the Gentile has a rightful place along the Jew, with the Jew in the worship of God because that was God's plan from eternity past. He quotes from Isaiah, there shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises shall rule over who? That's a reference to Christ, by the way, and he shall rule over the Gentiles and in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing so that you will abound by hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, this psalm is quoted in the New Testament and it is clear by the context in which it's quoted that the point here in Psalm 117 is that we are to understand that the gospel must go forth to the Gentile, that they might be converted, that God might become their God, not in some sort of superficial external way, but in the heart, so that they might declare to God. That's why I could barely bear it as I I heard John Paul praying in his native tongue. (laughs) What will that day be like? I can't go there yet. I can't. It's later. I got to wait. All right, here we go. The point is this, that God's mercy is upon all mankind through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore all are summoned to worship. God's mercy is wide. Men must be convicted and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We then what? We must go, we must send, we must support, we must endeavor. If we are ever gonna see all the nations praising God, then all the nations must hear. Brother and sister, you are involved in that in some way, shape, or form.
Yahweh must be worshipped for the wideness of his mercy. Secondly, Yahweh must be worshipped for the greatness of his love. The greatness of God's love. And we'll move quickly through this. Verse 2, back in Psalms. For his loving kindness, note that word for, we're getting reasons here as to why God should be praised. For his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. God loves the world, and God's love is great. And though the world does not deserve it, and though the world suppresses the truth of God, still, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his kindness, he sends rain upon the godly and the ungodly. His, he lets his son grow crops in your field and your neighbor's field, even though your neighbor's a Satanist. God is good even to those who hate him. This is why we're to be perfect as he is perfect. That ought to be characteristic of us as well as converted people made in the likeness of Christ. We are those who say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And this is the kind of God love that this God has, Yahweh has, even toward his enemies. And how much greater is his love toward us? And that reference there is directly towards those who are, who are the elect in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's loving kindness toward his own people, his faithfulness. We will ever be beloved in the beloved. And that word loving kindness is that expression chesed. It has to do with the loyal love of God for his people, his covenant love, his faithful love. He is, Exodus 34, 6, abounding in loving kindness. That's at the very core of what God revealed to Moses when he was telling Moses who he was. He is one who abounds in this love. He is great in it, says Psalm 117. In fact, that word great means something large, something strong, something mighty, something superior. I love this. It has the idea of something that prevails over something else because of its strength. Think about that in the love of God towards you. His love prevails toward his elect. His love conquers. His love is invincible. His love is overpowering. It wins. It dominates. That word is used in Exodus 7.18 of the floodwaters prevailing, covering the whole earth. It's used in Exodus 17.11. You remember Moses against the Amalekites, God against the Amalekites. And as Moses' hands were lifted, what? He prevailed. And when they dropped, Amalek prevailed. And so they got a couple of guys and propped his arms up so that they would prevail. They were victorious. They win. That's what this word means. Beloved, isn't it a comfort to know that the love of God toward you will prevail in the end? And the reason it will prevail is because Christ is a mighty Savior. 
He's a prevailing savior. He's a conquering savior. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered the grave. He will come again and he will raise us to be with him. He is our God and we are his people. We are the sheep of his hand and his hand has a grip on us and the father's hand has a grip on us and no one is stronger than the father. You have nothing to fear because of the greatness of Yahweh's loving kindness. That should make your heart leap. He has saved you to bring you home. He has saved you to adopt you forever. He will never kick you out of the house. You are weak. Your sins are many. But he is perfectly righteous and he has conquered. It's over. It's finished. You're his, and you will be his forevermore because his love cannot be shaken off. We have reason to rejoice. Nearly every time you read about the love of God in the New Testament, it's always attached to the very objective reality, the very objective expression of his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique Son, or in this way, God demonstrated his love to the world that he gave Jesus. That's the gift that conveys love. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. Well, how did he demonstrate it? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's the giving of the Son. 1 John 1.9 by this, the love of God was manifested in us. By what? How was it manifested? Well, God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, how great is the love of God for us that he would send his only son, that pure and perfect lamb of God slain for you, of all people, not because you're worthy, but because he's great, not because you're lovely, but because he loves. God is so gracious, and he has forgiven our sin. He set his love upon us in eternity past, and he has given us his son that we might be forgiven our sins. He has given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. He has made us to know him and we will one day know him as we are known. And he has sealed us as his own, and Christ has overcome everything and anything that will ever stand against you. You have no reason to fear, and he has committed himself to bringing you all the way home. God should be praised for his great loving kindness. For who will be able to separate us from the Steadfast love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, no one. That is a rhetorical question. Beloved, we have every reason to exult in this God. Why should we praise him? Well, for the wideness of his mercy. His mercy goes to the ends of the earth. And for the greatness of his love. And then thirdly, for the unchangeableness of his truth. Verse 2, for his loving kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. That idea of everlasting has the idea of unchangeable.
By truth, the psalmist focuses not only on the word of God, but really on the character of God himself. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His plans do not change. His love for you will never change. And his truth is enduring. It is eternal. God is not a man that he should lie. Numbers 23, 19. He is the God of truth, Titus 1, 2, who cannot lie. God cannot do some things. He cannot do anything that wars against his nature and it would be a lie that God could lie because he's a God of truth. He cannot lie. It's impossible, says the writer to the Hebrews, for God to lie, Hebrews 6, 18. He is ultimately reliable and all that he has spoken will come to pass. And this is so distinct from the world in which we live. And I know you get jaded by it. We get very suspect of anything we hear. And when you're listening to a man, that is reasonable. But when you hear it from the Lord God himself, who is the God of truth, the God who never lies, the God who cannot lie, he is faithful, he is true, he is unfailing. What he says he will accomplish and what he, what he tells us, he will provide. And what he is determined to do, he will do. And if he says he will forgive all of your sins in Christ, on that day, you will know that he has, in fact, forgiven all your sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. If he has committed himself to raising us on the last day, you will find on the last day that he will, in fact, raise you. Unbelievable as that is. If he has spoken clearly about his good purposes in your pain, you will find, in fact, that he is working all things together for good. It's just that right now you lack the vantage point or the perspective to understand it. But one day you will look and you will regret every complaint and every doubt. This is why fear and doubt and, and, and all of that is immoral. Anxiety is immoral. Why? If you're a child of God, you have nothing to fear. He's trustworthy. We praise him not because we can see and understand everything from where we sit. We praise him because he is a God of truth and he has spoken, hasn't he? He has told us that he's got us. I asked John Paul, what was he thinking? I asked him, did you think you were going to go home to the Lord? And he said, yes, I was very fearful. And I was filled with anxiety. And then I got a text from Brother Bob, right? Bob's a pastor down at the other church that I went to India with. And Brother Bob sent John Paul a text reminding him of the faithfulness of God the power of God. And he told him, do not fear. And those words alone picked you up, didn't they? And he began thinking like the Apostle Paul. He told us at the table last night, he said, he said, well, if the Lord takes me home, that would be good. And if he leaves me here, I'll go home to my family and that would be good. <laughs> Grace sufficient in time of need. We 
praise him not because we can understand it all and not because it, it is clear to us or we can see the outcome of this thing. We praise him according to what he has spoken in his word. We take him at his word. That is the essence of faith. God said it. That settles it. I will trust him. We live, beloved, not by what is seen, but by what is unseen. Do you understand that? That that is a twofold statement there. It is a rejection of one thing, which is living by what is seen. And it is a a white-knuckled embrace that I am going to live by what is unseen. What is unseen? Well, those things that are eternal. The Word of God tells us, informs us of all that we need to know. To live our lives faithfully before the Lord. In Christ, we have the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We believe God. Yes? May the Lord help our unbelief. But we believe God. We are weak and we understand it. But at the end of the day, we're going to stand on that. Let every man be a liar, but God is what? True. God is true. So, beloved, we finish. Your heart finishes. If it's anything like mine this morning, it finishes where the psalmist finished. He started out by saying, praise the Lord, and he concludes it by simply saying, praise the Lord. What what could be more appropriate than that? The psalmist bookends this psalm with another call to worship. And, beloved, this is the great motive behind our preaching, behind our evangelism, behind our worldwide efforts at missions. This is why we sacrifice. This is why we sin. Missions exist because worship doesn't, and God is worthy of worship. And therefore, I want to turn to one last passage with you. Don't, don't, don't fall short of this. Turn there. Go to Revelation chapter 7. It will be good for you. It will rejoice your heart. There is no more fitting place this morning to to end than in the final book when we read about that final day and we see the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm. Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which, note this, no one could count, from every nation and all tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. I don't think there are any more words to add. Be to our God forever and ever. And all the people of God said, Amen. This is the great day that Psalm 117 anticipates. And what a day of rejoicing it will be. Brothers and sisters, until then, may we give ourselves, may we give ourselves to the work of making Christ known in our praying, in our giving, in our going, in our sending, in our speaking, in our living, in everything we have. Let us praise the Lord. Let's have the music team come forward.
Our great God, we bow our heads before you now and we declare the rightness of these things. That the smallness of this psalm is met by the immensity of the responsibility that your people have to lift up your name. And Lord, that is our very joy, our very delight. You are our God and we have no other. You are the only God in all of creation. You are the only God in the universe. And Lord, how blind the peoples are and in their rebellion. And Lord, we were once one of them in our rebellion. We deserve to be cast off. We deserve to see your wrath revealed against us. But you have shown us mercy from the beginning, before the beginning of time, and that you called us by your grace to know you. What thanks can we render to you for the salvation that we have in the Son? Lord, take this message implanted in your people's hearts. May you grow from it a, a crop that flowers forth in giving and going gospel proclaiming, Lord, help us to be faithful in the market and faithful in our place of business, faithful around, around our dinner table. Lord, help us to, to, to undertake this great task of making you known. What a joy it is. Keep us from being ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And Lord, for that, we give praise to your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.